Shut up and sit down. world building for my uh, November project and I decided to share my world building before I ever started building so I knew that these documents and um, ideas and thoughts would be out there on my website at a certain point so um, I've been a little bit more organized on that particular front um, in keeping track of, of what I wanted to put on the website and what I had no intention of putting on the website. Like, for instance, I don't intend to share my actual plot document, um, but I have shared um, some articles and essays that I created for myself. And just a few minutes ago, I updated my um, timeline for the foundation of my series and what's really interesting about um this process is that i've gotten some feedback that i found surprising people are really interested in it and they like seeing the process and that's really cool that that's the whole point i'm just you know trying to share my process with you guys but what's super interesting and is the amount of people who apparently thought I spent the last eight years lying about my process. I don't know what you thought, um, but I've had a couple of emails where people seemed really surprised by the amount of work that they have seen, which, to be perfectly frank, is about 10% of the work I've actually put into the synthetic project because you're not seeing my plot. I haven't put up the character profiles yet, but I fully intend to. Um and, you know, I've shared character pro- um, character profiles before, because if you go to Ties That Bind, you'll see character profiles. But what you haven't seen from Ties That Bind is probably upwards of 90,000 words of articles and essays that I wrote for just myself. That no one's seen. You know, my betas haven't seen them. Um, they're just not for public consumption, and they never will be because I didn't write them with the intent that they would be shared. So, in order to share them, I would have to go in and edit out a lot of things I consider very personal, especially when it comes to a world like Ties That Bind and um, the elements of submission and dominance and bondage. And my and I inserted a lot of personal experiences into these essays as I was um, creating. Um, pleasure houses and um, uh, pre-writing exhibition scenes and that kind of thing. And so Ties That Bind, the work behind Ties That Bind is never going to be available to the public. Um, It's just not something I'm very comfortable with. But I knew going into Synthetic that I wanted to share this, so um, I've approached it a little differently, a little more formally as it comes to the creation of my... um, my articles and my essays and um, the things that I've asked myself and um, trying to um, kind of um, deepen what I'm doing 
with um, my story. Um, but if you want to go and check it out, um, I have a page on my site for world building, and I'm going to share it on this podcast. And it'll stay up permanently. Um, and it's basically, you know, a collection of excerpts and articles and um, just uh, – But what's really super important about the information that's in this stuff is that, in honesty, probably none of it will come up in the narrative of my story. This is about things that I need to know as a writer as I'm approaching my story because my timeline, everything in my timeline that I put on my site takes place before my opening scene. Um, all the essays and um, all the things that I've written, the little articles and the excerpts and um, um, things to come, these are things that I know that I'm going to go into my story knowing that probably won't show up in the narrative. And these are the kinds of things that I think, for me, help me build a um, a rich background for my project without um, – there are things you don't need to know. But once you know them, it um, it does create a more intimate storytelling, I think. Um, so for me, part of being a storyteller is knowing what I tell you and then knowing the things that um, that won't show up in the narrative that but impact the narrative. Um, it's just it's just something that I've um that I've always done and um the, you know I probably have almost 200k of notes plot personal discussion with myself for Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond these are things that I keep in notebooks so that I have and they're you know that I have audio files of that I've used when I've been out on my phone and I've been out somewhere and I wanted to take notes and I was driving and um I once talked non-stop for two three hours I drove to um Birmingham from Atlanta and I talked the entire time into my phone about ties that bind, and I still have all those. <laughs> I still have that voice recording. Um, and it's about um, just I just rambled on and on and on about what I wanted to do with it and how I wanted to go and what was going to happen. And um, um, it's not available, and it won't be available to the um, to you guys because it is very personal. And my husband is actually on that recording as well because he asked a lot of questions and um, found. Um, you know, it's just part of my process that I consider very personal. But so that's the, you know, and I'm like, no, I really do all that stuff. I, I really do. So people who seem surprised by just this small part that I've shared with um, you guys for synthetic, and I'm like, really? Because I don't know how else to do it. And some person, one person actually said that they were surprised that I put this much effort into fan fiction. I put this much effort into anything over 10K. Um, those little shorts on Rough Trade, I'm, those are off the cuff. That's as, um, as much pantsing as I allow myself. Um, are there projects on my site that I've pantsed? Yes. Yes, there are. Um, Birth of the Serpent King was pantsed. I broke my foot and I was stuck in a place 
And I was like, well, what if? And I asked myself a question, and then I wrote for a solid week. Then I had to go back and fix some problems because there were some issues with my plot, and I just moved things out. And then I sent the whole thing to Lady Holder unexpectedly. Yeah, I certainly did that. Um, but for the most part, uh, I don't pants because I... Um, it might, you know, it's, I don't pants because I hate having to go back over my work and fix problems that I never should have had to begin with. And I get mad because I'm thinking to myself, if I had just done a little planning, I wouldn't have to rewrite 20K. And it gets really frustrating and I get really irritated. And so um, while I can pants, in the end, it ends up being more hassle and more, and it's very uncomfortable um, psychologically than I am prepared to deal with on a regular basis. That's just me, though. Um, but coming into November, I plotted and world, and I world building for. Three other ideas um, that I ended up dismissing because I didn't feel like they met the challenge in a way that I really wanted to meet the challenge because I wanted to um, to dig in and meet the heart of the challenge. And a lot of people um, coming into the challenge are maybe a little intimidated, so they're kind of falling back on canon events and um, you know entrenching themselves in um, the fandom of their choice. And that's perfectly fine. That's where you need to be. You need to be where you're comfortable. Um, but I wanted to challenge myself. Uh, and the best way to challenge myself was to was to build um, something brand new. And that's the whole point for me as far as I've trade is concerned, is to find ways to challenge myself within the challenges that um, I make deceptively simple so that everybody can participate at their own level without feeling like they're not, without feeling like they're failing the challenge itself. And the world building challenge is actually Jilly's. It was her idea. Um, and she's on the phone. Um, so if she wants to talk about it, you can let me know in the chat room. Um, but someone said in the chat room that they, they're, they're, I guess they've been reading my little articles and, um, there, uh, they found the idea of people not being able to live off the earth, to live separately from the earth, terrifying. It's supposed to be terrifying. That's the point. So I'm, I'm glad I accomplished that. The idea, um, which I don't want to go to, and you know, I, there's going to be some more articles about the living earth, um, but. Mostly, it's a biofeedback issue, um, and it's not so much distance as it is time, which will show up in the articles as well, um, and uh, that being taken away um, from our natural environment um, causes um, our body chemistry to go, woo. You know, <laughs> and we don't respond well to it. And so the idea came from because I was I was reading a lot of stuff about um, metaphysics and um, bioenergetics and um, 
complicated systems and biospheres and how um, um, how much synergy there is um, with life on Earth. And I thought to myself, well, what if that synergy was more than just synergy? What if that synergy was a requirement that our sentience um, and our emotional stability uh, greatly depends on that biofeedback? Um, and that people who aren't as emotionally stable as others have issues in their body that is interfering with the biofeedback. That we aren't, that people who um, suffer from psychotic episodes and people who have um, depression, um, their bodies aren't interacting um, in our system the way they're supposed to. Uh, that these illnesses that we get every day are a response uh, to um, the fact that these, all of this is um, the earth lives and we live and die together. And, you know, as populations increase, as pollution increases, and we can start that, you know, that the earth is. Um, not able to deal with our population, people start to suffer. And so that's the premise of um, that whole thing with people not being able to live away from the earth is that there we are um, intimately connected um, through a series of bioenergetics. And it's all fiction. It's all complete fiction. But there's such a visceral... response to I had such a visceral response when I was reading about the metaphysics and the living earth and the um the bioenergetics and um uh self regulating systems and the guy principle. It just I was just really super fast, um fascinated by the whole thing and I said, So what if what if all that stuff was real? What if we are part of a complex system? What happens when we remove ourselves from that complex system? So anyways, that's where that came from. Hi. I had to unmute myself. (laughs) So what do you think? Uh, I think it's it's just a brilliant deep dive into your world building as to um, how those energies, how those energies are interconnected and um, what they mean to, to the idea of living away from Earth. Um, and we've had a couple conversations that uh, just really got me to thinking about um, life energy and stuff. And I, I just I love the world building you're putting together for this project. Um, it's it's really interesting, and I'm I'm really enjoying myself. And I've and I've played with the topics of psionic energy before, and mm-hmm. um and um there's some stuff in um, Tangled Destinies to do with um uh with betazoids and their um, interaction with um, the universe and their environment. And so it was just really interesting to kind of dig a little deeper. And there's bioenergetics and the guy, that's just some really fascinating stuff. That's some fascinating stuff. Um, I've also been digging into the mind-body problem, and that is, wow. You, you just go off the deep end and you get into that kind of stuff. <laughs> 
the whole mind body thing that's just i <laughs> just some topics i'd be like wow i might need like another 10 years of experience <laughs> before i want to try to delve into that the story so i'm totally in awe of all the different research directions you've taken this into um Let me just cut my. I missed something in the chat room. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading. Um, I don't read Teen Wolf, so if it's a cross between Teen Wolf SG One and SGA, I've never read it because I've only read like two Teen Wolf stories, and they were both AUs, and they were just strict AUs of Teen Wolf, two or three. Um, I do, I, I, I do like the character styles. But I absolutely hate Scott, and it's really difficult for me to get into Teen Wolf thick as a as a result. Yeah, well, I did read a really cool one. What? Go ahead. I was say it's really weird how you read stories even by the people who really like him, and you still can't stand him. <laughs> I know, right? It's like they're they're embracing his asshole, and I'm not on board with it. <laughs> and I'm usually all about the ass. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, no, I tend to avoid multi-fandom crossovers like that because I I find them very frustrating. Although I did read a really awesome SGA story once where Derek was a runner. He was from, um, Satita, um, and, uh, <laughs> Styles is a scientist from Earth and Derek ends up on Styles' um, team on Atlantis and, um, he keeps fucking people up because they they look wrong at Styles or they talk to Styles and he and he just loses his shit. So the <laughs> so so the team is constantly like running for their lives <laughs> because of Derek's unresolved sexual tension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Multi fandom crossovers are funny because I um I can do them if oh I have no problem with them if you. If they're if the if the worlds are basically mesh well, like mm-hmm. you know you could like throw the entire every somebody from every show in the CSI franchise, someone from every show in the NCIS franchise, someone from every show in the Law and Order franchise, and it's gonna gel fine if the author's craft is good. Um, but there's some canons that don't meld well to me, so you kind of have to if you want to use the characters, you kind of take the characters out of the fandom, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit. Um, there were several things that kind of went into why I suggested this challenge. Um, and one of them was just, it was, it was you know, just to see people improve on a skill that I think um, that a lot of writers that I read, and not necessarily on rough trade, but just in general, struggle with, which is um, how to adapt characters. There's a few things. How to adapt characters when you take them out of their canon and put them in another which I often don't see done um, what I would consider particularly effectively. Because uh, if you take someone out of, say, especially a fantasy world or um, a supernatural-based world, and you put them in you know, a, modern, a, you know, a modern setting or a modern like, cop, AU, cop, cop setting or put them in NCIS or something, if their canon no longer exists, they're going to be really different if they haven't been demon hunting or... Um, doing magic their whole life, and yet you see the character be the exact same. So there was that. And then there was something that I noticed sometimes in when we do our Sentinel fusions, which is that that's the closest to a 
fairly consistent world-building challenge that we get. Um, uh, like, you know, you kind of have to do some level of world-building. And one of the things I noticed, um, and this is not at all a criticism, it's just I sometimes wonder if people thought through the choices they were making in their world-building. Because you don't have to do a horrible amount of world-building because it's not like you're fusing elves and humans together, you know, two incompatible canons. But there's some world-building you have to consider. And you can't just take a whole bunch of fan and elements and throw them in a bag and shake them and hope that everything comes out okay because sometimes the result is that it doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, so there was that. So there was trying to kind of think more about the world you're building and what the rules need to be. And... Um, um, how to how to how to how to craft something, um, either new or adapt what's already there. And the other you know the, the other reason is just I thought it'd be fun because I really enjoy world building and uh, yeah I, sometimes I have some limits in my own mind and I wanted to challenge those limits and so that's why I wrote you and said what do you think of this and. I was um, like, well, you're going to make a banner. You <laughs> <laughs> said she like that was the first thing you said, too. It was like, well, you're going to make a banner. I was like, all right. <laughs> so I was like, how the fuck am I? No, I can't, no. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's uh, and the more I work on, because I, um, I had several plot ideas, um, and um, each one I kind of worked through, the one I think I liked the best outside of the one I'm doing was one that I ultimately put aside because I didn't feel like it was a difficult enough. It wasn't enough world building for me. It was, it was a soulmate AU, um, which had some world building in it, but it's a lot like doing a Sentinel thing where you're just kind of laying an element over um, the universe that already exists, right? You just have this, you know, mark that appears and you have soulmates. So, um and I think that, you know, everybody has to pick where they're comfortable. Are they more comfortable in a canon? Are they comfortable with a small amount of world building, a lot of world building, um, you know, crafting something completely original, a giant science fiction AU of their own making? Whatever your deal is, I think you just kind of the idea for Rough Trade to me is always to challenge myself a little bit. And the Soulmate AU wasn't enough of a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't feel like there was enough world building. So I uh, I put that aside. Um, and um, although that would have been um, a Tony grows up as a shepherd story, which was one of the things I found the most interesting about it, so that may revisit that at some point in time. And uh, I don't even remember what. Oh no, the first one was um, the first one I really and I crafted this whole thing out was um, an oldest profession AU. Uh, put that one aside. Um, and it's funny because I think, you know, the one I believe, mother's I set that one aside because sometimes I think there's some things you don't want to write raw. You don't want to, you don't want to flail about with something um, that kind of challenges maybe some of your comfort level in some areas in challenge where you don't have time to think through some things, you know what I mean? It's like you want private time for it. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. really weird. <laughs> like, I, need, I need more time for this than I've got. I need, I need to, I need to percolate on this a little bit. I need yeah, to, so like, to set on it. It's like, oh, sometimes you sometimes with some things you want to put a a chapter up and you just need some time with it, something you know feels like it's gonna maybe have 
you know, some issues that you need to work through. There's another story that I put aside for that. It was a it was a story featuring some really creepy stalker stuff, and I was like, you know, this is one of those things I'm not going to be able to write for a challenge because I just can't um, not – I don't want to set myself up to not be able to take a break from my story if I need it, if it mm-hmm. gets to be too much for me. So, mm-hmm. so I set aside some ideas for that. And then I finally set it on one that just was kind of a, you know, a reinvention of the, um, the world bringing in a, um, you know, a shifter element of the lichens way back um, – in history, and so I'm kind of still I'm still working through some of the historical ramifications at this point, and that's taking up a lot of time, of you know how things would evolve differently, and um, you know geographically even how things would be different. So I have the United States carved up differently because things went different in American history, and so I'm kind of working out what all those details are. But it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun, and it is a challenge, and that's one of the reasons why I suggested this. And I know some people have have contacted me privately and said it feels like it's too much of a challenge. Um, and I would, you know, I would just encourage people to dial it back as much as you need to the challenge part of it until you feel like you're at a place where you're challenged but comfortable. Because the idea isn't to, you know, to send anybody into the challenge feeling terrified, right? Yeah, you're not supposed to be hysterical people. That's why you have the option of doing an original world or um, doing a fandom where you're very comfortable. So it'll be easy for you to pluck up a character out of one fandom and drop them down in another if you just relax. You can keep as much of their canon history as you want. You just work it into a different environment until you're comfortable. Um. The point is is to adjust your character to fit the fandom, if you're using a fandom. Um, now, honestly, I think it's easier to do an original world, which is um, kind of crazy. But when, when you do an original world, you can abandon all, um, all canon, and no one's going to be like, oh, well, you didn't do this. Well, no shit, it's a whole new world. <laughs> can do what I want. Someone brought up ley lines in the um in the chat room and what I'm doing in um in synthetic is strictly science. No magic. I read an article, um I need to find the article so I can link it in my in my world building. I read an article about how um some scientists have figured out that plant that plants um communicate with each other. And oh, I read an article have, about that years ago and it scared the crap out of me. And they have this um energy exchange and so do we. People exchange energy. You pick up energy from people when you have contact with them physically and vice versa. And it's a minute amount of energy, but it's there. Um, and plants have this kind of bioenergetic uh, response to each other. And so that's where um, the idea sparked from. Um, I don't, I, I, I didn't want to delve in, because I had originally was going to do sci- um, psionic energy, which is where I fell back on. Um, so it sounds like I'm very comfortable with when it comes to uh, um Writings, I do it because I did it in Tangled Destinies, and I do it in my Harry Potter um, with with 
calling it magic instead of psionic energy and, you know, using ley lines in Harry Potter. That's all really fun and fascinating, but I wanted to do this in such a way that there was absolutely no magic. This is just science. This is what happens when you science the shit out of something in a fictional world because I'm not actually a scientist. Because <laughs> my husband has told me once or twice 100 times in the past month. <laughs> It's like, I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> you can't argue science with a scientist. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you that right now. And you, you especially really can't. can't expect them to accept fictional science without a great deal of discussion. Yeah. I've tried arguing math with my pops sometimes, which is ridiculous because I've admitted openly that I'm crap at math, but he'll try to explain a concept with me that I think is ridiculous and I will argue with him which is which is absurd because one of his degrees is in math so <laughs> it's just like la la la. <laughs> la 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 but that's the thing that caught my um that sparked my attention that um old especially old forest trees plants um they have a um a very energetic response to each other. Well, the idea behind Avatar um, and the planet living is is directly taken from the guy principle. The ideas that they explore in the Avatar with um, bioenergetics, that's all based in metaphysical philosophy that's been around for decades upon decades. But, but they put some elements in... Um, in Avatar that uh, I found a little hinky. (laughs) Am I the only one that has a real problem with the tail? No, it's terrible. It's like every time it's like, so sex with your partner involves the tail. tail. And when you ride your horse, it involves the tail. And And then you get on your bird. You get on your flying sky lizard, and you still use the tail. I mean, that's kind of pervy. The, the, uh, I like, where else has that been? Where, if the tail is used for sex, there should be some um. It just seems like um, the intimacy in that movie is um a a little hinky. Because there is a lot more sex going on than you thought. And you didn't even know you were seeing that sex until they had sex. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, ooh, there was a horse. Oh, that was God. Bestiality. Oh, my God, I watched bestiality. What? What? <laughs> Tail condom. Yeah. yeah, they didn't even use protection with the horse. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'd be like... You know, in my in my kit on that planet would be like you know a certain number of trash bags. I could wrap up my tail and take that thing shut. Like I don't want any accidents. That is not slipping into anything without my permission. (laughs) (sighs) But um, I'm just saying it was a little. I mean, if you're going to consider that intimacy between two people. Um, then you have to acknowledge that he was also intimate with that horse thing and that flying lizard thing. Yeah, his sky lizard just and the sky, especially the sky lizard. You know, you, you, they developed a life a life bond. 
there was you know, now you're making me think that there was, there was a big old rape scene. <laughs> well, the, the animal didn't consent to that shit, did they? They had to jump on him, and, and then he's brainwashed. I am, I'm, I'm writing James Cameron a letter. Oh my god, I'm just I'm just horrified now. I wasn't I just see if you take ramifications all the way to the end. Like, I don't appreciate taking my kids to see a movie where some dude is raping a sky lizard. That's just not working for me. <laughs> With his tail. <sighs> yeah, logical ramifications. No, I'll never be able to watch Avatar again without getting mad. <laughs> that poor sky <laughs> lizard. Because <laughs> unlike the horse, right, the lizard is now, like, enslaved in a bond for the right. rest of its life. It's terrible. Yeah, there was something with the tree, but the tree kind of grows grows these filaments. Well, no, he did. He did offer his tail to the tree. I forgot about that. He's such a slut. <laughs> like, you whore, quit molesting that tree. But the tree is is Gaia. Yeah, everyone did the tree. The, the tree got more action than anybody else did in the whole movie. I don't know. Perception is a motherfucker. Um, but, so, the idea um, sparked from that article I read about plants um, and their bioenergy and how they exchange energy and communicate. And I'm like, yeah, if well, you we're, buy... that, we're gonna pay for that eventually. <laughs> yeah, really. If you don't, if you don't buy bioenergy, think about how many times you've been out in public, and you can feel somebody staring at you, or you sleep with someone all night long, and they wake up five minutes before you and stare at you for five minutes, and it wakes you up. You've been in bed together; they haven't moved nothing. Been together all night, and you've been fine. And the minute they start staring at you, it wakes you up. My husband can do that to me. He can walk into the bedroom and stare at me, and I'll wake straight up. But what's more interesting is um, uh, when you have someone move close to you but not touch you, um, that that body heat they're radiating, that's a form of energy. You can feel it. You can feel that, that energy that our bodies are creating, and we're leaking out. That's what our body heat is. So if you hover your hand over somebody else's skin and you don't touch them, you can feel the energy that their body is creating hovering around their skin, which you can call an aura. An aura? An aura? I can't. Yes, an aura. If you like. You know, I um. I won't get into the details here. It wasn't anything, like, horrible. It was just something that happened. But I wound up touching, um, being not touching, like, just being in contact with uh, somebody who was, who was dead at some point. A lot of people have this experience in their life in one way or the other. And it wasn't it wasn't even the cold that freaked me out. It was just there was something so wrong about it that felt so wrong, so not connected, not connected, not not right about it, that it completely is singularly one of the freakiest things I've ever experienced because it was like, it just was, 
it wasn't what yes. I think of as as a person anymore. It was weird. It was like everything that felt familiar was was gone. And you know, and from that moment on, whenever I see like you know a funeral scene or something in a movie or TV show, where someone goes up and like kisses you know the person in the casket on the forehead or something or touches their hand, I'm like, no, no, oh my no. god, that's like that's like freaks me the fuck out because it's just so. It just feels so, so like you said, disconnected and wrong, and and like it's just not the way it's supposed to be, and and it's just, oh no. Well, there is that whole thing about women who have held their um, babies that were believed to be born, stillborn, and the baby wake up. Skin to skin therapy. Mm-hmm. Babies who. Um, they believe aren't going to survive are often brought to their mothers. And there have been um, occasions where um, women have held their naked infant on their chest and the infant responded. And it's not just a matter of skin to skin contact. And it's not just a matter of even just body heat because you can replicate heat in an incubator. This is something else. This is some kind of energy sharing that goes beyond um, traditional medicine and traditional understanding. And babies have woke up and lived and thrived and you're like, and also that failure to thrive of babies who were not held, who were given everything else, who were given all the care they need um, but don't if they're not held, they can fail to thrive. Yeah, some of the stories about what's happened with children who, um, like those, you know, huge baby orphanages where each child is just left alone untouched and stuff for potentially years at a time other than basic feeding and changing and stuff, mm-hmm. those kids just don't do well. People are meant to touch, especially when you're, you know, a baby. It can cause massive amounts of behavior um, issues as well. Um, so, you know, it's just a theory. It's just a way of um, I'm kind of reimagining the world. And um, the uh, the thread of artificial intelligence failing repeatedly in my timeline um goes back to the idea that sentience um, needs more. That a sentient life form needs more. Um, And um, when they figure that out, they create their first living um, um, AI that survives. And that also helps them survive as a a synthetic species. So it's all... um, Uh, it's just um just a way of looking at the world and seeing um what kind of connections that you could possibly make um and um the idea that um because they're all digital. And Miko creates an AI, and, and, and um, his name is Alistair. And Alistair um, uh, runs the Odyssey 
and he takes care of the ark and he wakes and harvests the crew through the cycles as they travel. Um, and there comes a point where they have to determine how exactly Alistair is any different than any of them. And that happens during the final cycle when Alistair asks for a body. And why should he be denied a body? How is he any different than them? At this point. Yeah. So it's, um, it becomes, you know, and that's how they, um, they realize that they can grow. That they don't, that, that they're not stuck at the numbers that they have because now they have synthetic bodies and they can't reproduce because Miko Zelenka did. She had a son and his name is Alistair. And, um, once that happens, um, they realize that they can reproduce. They can continue. They can they can build a new world, and they can they can build a new people. So it's just um, it's a story of, of of a digital evolution, I guess. Um, but I'm super excited to be writing it. I'm I'm super excited. I'm curious, you don't have to answer this question, but based on your plotting, do you have an estimated word count that you're going to, it's going to take you for to tell a story? Um, from, I've, <laughs> um, my plot is a little over 200K. <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> Because there's that, you know, there's, um, there's the, uh, Alistair, um, puts the, the cycle, um, in order to keep them mentally healthy, um, they've been traveling for, um, over, let me get my number, um, I wrote my number down, um, They've been traveling for 2,800 years, basically, um, in this ship. And most of them are in the Ark. And there are 24,000-plus people in the Ark. And they've been um, they've been traveling, and they've been cycling. But to keep them um, mentally healthy, they have been cycling in and out of the Ark um, in two-man teams for 25 years each. So you come out of the Ark, you go into a synthetic body, you maintain the Odyssey for 25 years, you're harvested, and somebody else comes out to take your place. And they do it in teams. And if something goes wrong on the ship that they need more, they need a specialized person, that person comes out of the Ark, makes the repairs that need to be made, does whatever they need to do as far as, you know, preventing that from happening again, then they go back into the ark. This protects their energy resources, this um because there's not a lot of room in the um the Odyssey. It's actually a very small ship at this point. Um and so uh they've been doing this for a very long time. So when my story opens it's gonna be Rodney um coming out and this is his tenth cycle. 
since they left Earth. And he has to pick his team to settle. And they're getting data from the probes they've launched for the planet. And they're um, kind of tweaking the synthetic body to make sure it can um, survive on the planet without any issues or problems. Um, And so, you know, John has to come out because he's, you know, he's, that was, his research that started that and it's just it's you know i'm trying to figure out who's going to come out of the arc and you know um how they're going to interact and they'll be like dude are you serious you don't have a single military asset out of the arc are you fucking insane what if there's big giant monsters on the planet (laughs) so you know there there comes that you know that that um those moments where they have to kind of readjust what what their plan was and um uh, getting down there on the planet and then it's just, you know, and the interpersonal relationships and Alistair getting a body and um, just it. So while I, I think my first arc is going to be between 65 and a hundred K and that's my plan for November. So, but my second arc um, is a is going to be a little deeper and a little more um, relationship based, and that's probably between fifty and a hundred k as well. So, I don't see anybody protesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I am super excited about my work, which is why I keep writing articles and. Um, little excerpts and because I can't help myself if if I don't stop if I don't start if if I stop doing that I'm going to end up writing so I have to like keep um focusing on and I'm and I've I've made a list of our articles to write um that's uh really fun and I'm going to write Miko's article next when she talks about the creation of Alistair and um how um how important it was to her to be able to as a woman um giving up her her biological body meant she was forever abandoning the idea that she would have more children mm. and she had two um but but there would be no more children after she um agreed to be harvested and she was very sick and dying anyway but when she came but the idea that she would never be able to have more children was was really um more than she could tolerate so she had to um she had to find a way for her and everyone else that was doing this to to propagate that was uh, that was just a main um central drive in her as she moved into um the process of being harvested. I really look forward to reading that. I've enjoyed, I, I don't think I've read the most recent one that came out, um, but I'm looking forward to reading that and to reading whatever comes next because the articles are really fascinating. Uh, it's gotten me to writing a couple of, like, you know, um, like history book excerpts for what I'm working on. But yeah. um, most, I'm going to be doing some stuff from a TV show. Um, mm-hmm. To supply some of the exposition um, in in the actual story, but that I can't actually obviously work on because I'll be using it. Right, um, sort of an unsolved but mysteries kind of thing. It's really helpful 
to kind mm-hmm. of hammer out the back of your process because these aren't things that I'm really going to use in the narrative beyond knowing this stuff happened. And a lot of times I write this stuff in my head. You know, I'll have um, theories and ideas and um, full-blown essays or whatever you want to call them um, in my head in relation to work that I'm, I'm doing. And sometimes they're audio files if I'm, if I'm in my car, especially if I'm in my car. Um, and it's just, it's really, it's, um, it's a way of expanding, especially for, if you're really um, nervous about the actual plot process and you, and, and you find the plot process um, taxing or if the plot process itself makes you uninspired to write later which happens to lots of panthers if, if, if they try to plot. Instead of plotting, um, you can think about the history of your characters and um, the, um, where they're coming from. And you can, you know, just kind of drabble your way through um, their history until they reach the point where your story begins. And it's, it's, um, it, it, it's I find it very helpful. You might not. You might love it. You might hate it um, as a writer. Um, as a reader, I hope you find it interesting. And I'm sorry if I gave anybody nightmares. <laughs> that really wasn't my intention. I did want it to be kind of horrifying, the idea that these people on Mars were going insane because um, they weren't um, they weren't on Earth. And that these AIs were dying because they were missing components. Um, they were missing something. Um, so it is kind of horrifying, but you know, that aspect of it, but it's also the whole thing is just really fascinating. And there've been several elements that I was like, you know, it's like my priority list is like taco truck. And then some of the things that you've, you know, put forward for what these people, like, I want the synthetic body. I want to get a new one every 25 years. I know, I want, right? I want the, I want the, the proto food replicator. I'm like, you know, so it's like, it's like, you know, you give me like a wish list, but like, you know, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of sad actually. It's like, I want all this shit that that's not going to happen in my lifetime. Likely. I know, right? The proto Sorry. food replicator. Yeah. That might happen. Um, but what was really interesting is when I said, okay, if they have synthetic bodies, um, do they need power? Are they, do, do they need to be plugged into something? Um, do they need nutrients? Um, uh, what's going on and, and how do they work? You know, um, and um, I, I, I came to realize that, especially when it comes to the people who used to be organic, um, the idea of not eating would cause, um, I think it would cause mental issues. Um, there would be issues around the idea of not eating because eating is a very human experience. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just like when I realized that I would have to simulate a human skin that they could not be um that that they had to have the ability to have stimulus um pleasure pain touch they had to have living skin um and it became um when I was working on that part of it I was like okay I you know because you don't want to disconnect them from uh the actual living part of their existence they're they're giving up so much um, that that you have to give them an anchor. 
Well, exactly right, Dark. Um, Dark asked in the chat room, if you have a synthetic body but you have the memory of being organic, would you have cravings? I, I think you absolutely would have cravings. You would also oh, yeah. have kind of like a desire for um, physical intimacy and emotional connection. So when I was thinking about how they would be constructed um, and um, how that process would happen, which is why John's first synthetic fails, um, because they didn't account for the need for physical stimulus. Just imagine going, you know, essentially going to sleep in an organic body and waking up in a robotic one and not needing to breathe, not having a pulse. Your skin has no heat. You're living in plastic. I don't think that the average human brain or even someone who's really super smart, like I have John being in this, could assimilate enough of that fast enough. So his body failed. Yeah, it's too much all at once because just look at what somebody who loses one or two senses goes through, which isn't even remotely the same thing as, you know, like let's say you lose, you know, your sight or your sense of hearing or if you've had it and you lose it, there's a huge adjustment phase. But if you add that onto like, you know, all you've got is, you you know, you don't, you can't taste and you don't smell and you don't feel things and you don't, you, you, you don't feel yourself breathing, um, I went through this um, this medical treatment once where you're kind of put under with it's, it's supposed to be like twilight sedation, but you know I don't ever go to sleep with that kind of stuff. And um, it's, they give you a, a kind of your, you don't kind of feel your body anymore at all. Um, especially you just have like I have no perception of the one of the most tr- difficult things is I had no perception of breathing, and you're monitored the whole time you're going through this treatment. And I would sit there and go. Am I breathing? The thing is that the medication was also dissociative, so I didn't give a shit that I didn't think I was breathing. <laughs> but if so, you weren't in that particular state, it could have... I would have panicked. I would have completely panicked. Yeah. And and I'm sitting there, and I'm just talking to the doctor. I'm like, am I still breathing? He goes, you're still breathing. And I'm like, are you sure? He says, I'm really sure you're still breathing. I couldn't move my head. I couldn't move my arms. I'm just sitting there, like, paralyzed. And I was really, really glad later on that I had that this medication was a dissociative because I couldn't imagine how traumatic that would have been. And I was like, I think my toes and fingers are missing. And he says, they're not missing. And I'm like, are you sure? And he goes, yeah, I'm positive. And I'm looking at them, they're right there. I'm like, well, I don't believe you, and it's okay. But I have to have them back before I go. <laughs> and, you know, and then I just, you had all the, and I, you also hallucinate, by the way. And I'm sitting there going, the feeling is trying to eat me. I said, but I think if I close my eyes, I won't care anymore. <laughs> and it's just, but I can't imagine having it when I think back on it now. When I when I you know when, when I came when the medication wore off, and I thought about what my perceptions were while I was while, while I was going through this treatment, which lasted for like almost two hours. I was freaked out. I was like, I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't feel my body. What the hell? And it just it's yeah, I cannot imagine if if that is your your the 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 foundation for you know what you, what your perception of yourself as a being is is how you are in your own skin 
if that was all suddenly dramatically different, it would Just be really instantly. traumatizing. It would really be really traumatizing. traumatizing. And I, I try to think about that and the psychology behind it um, and um, just the, uh, the, the displacement of, of, of being in a body that literally feels nothing like your own. Even if it looks like you, it doesn't feel like you. Well, yeah, and there's there's psychological basis for for people struggle with like people who have rapid weight loss um, struggle really can can struggle really with what is it body dysmorphia where they just yeah. cannot reconcile what's going on with their body um, it doesn't feel right doesn't look right um, and there's a lot of different conditions that can you know a lot of different things that can happen where people suddenly don't can't or people who've had like a traumatic um, like a limb amputation or something like that it's it's like everything about them just suddenly is nothing feels right. And, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of psychological issues. So you take that to, you know, the nth degree where you, like, everything is different and people's, you know, their psyches are going to melt down. But, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, there's lots of interesting things going on um, and, um things that you um that I'm kind of um trying to figure out how that's going to work um then um then there's the other side of it I mean there's the people on earth who are horrified by the idea of of living in a synthetic body and they are horrified by the synthetics and they don't know how to deal with it and it makes them question um um everything you know how do you give up um if if you're a religious person, the idea of, of giving up the body you were given by your God in favor of a machine. But moreover, if you're a religious person um, and you see somebody you know has been digitally harvest, harvested, in your mind they've given up their ability to ever achieve heaven. Which would be a big deal for some people. Would be extreme. Well, because you're also these people are challenging the notion of, you know, what is a soul, um, mm-hmm. and are they even know, real people? At yeah. this point, they're just robots. And um, if the soul can transfer like that, it challenge that would challenge the notion of what is a soul if you can transfer it into an artificial body, or do you just believe that it can't be done, and therefore these people aren't people anymore? So there's going to be, you know, um, there will be articles about that um, in particular. um, And I had to decide um, who was going to be the voice of that and um, how that would um, be. And, um, of course, it was my natural natural selection to pick Daniel Jackson as the one who decided that Earth was alive. Because why not? (laughs) That made so much perfect sense to me. Of course, he's the crackpot that thinks, you know, that thinks the earth's alive of course he is um and that was the brilliant canon parallel that i was like oh god i'm jealous over that because not only does he think it but he's actually right so again aliens built the pyramids and he's Mm -hmm. right and that's the kind of you know when you're paralleling canon um in an au i mean really that's the kind of thing you're going for is something that kind of mirrors um is a mirror, but not literally. 
You know what I mean? I mean, you, there, you, you can, like you say, you can you can take as much of a character's backstory as you want, um, but you know, okay, it might be funny if Harry Potter's in another world where he literally has to fight another troll. That could actually be amusing, depending upon how it's done, or it could also be kind of a kind of a clunky, um, too literal parallel. It's like he's in his first year of elf school and has to. Um, fight a troll uh but there's some real there's some real opportunity to find ways to parallel kind of cleverly parallel uh events in canon or things about your character in canon and do something fun with it and not all of your readers will get it but those that do it's just kind of like a little i don't know i really enjoy that when people get that kind of thing I think it's so much fun. I, I think it's so much fun. Um, someone asked in the chat room if people can look the way they they were when they alive, or can they ask for something different? And I think that you know, at that point, you know, w- you know, once you've been a, a a digital person and you come back out of the ark, you can be whatever the hell you want to be. <laughs> Just whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, as time goes by, I mean, this is Kira's world, so I'm just speculating here, but that, you know, they would probably have, like, they would develop some psychological um, understanding about what too drastic a change does to people um, Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, have some advisories about, you know, how to prepare for a dramatic change. But I doubt that, you know, would they forbid it or, you know, I don't think they would forbid it. Obviously, as you just said, they wouldn't, but... You know, they, they would learn things for people who had done a dramatic change, from people who had done a dramatic change, and how it affected them, and how to better prepare for that kind of thing in the future. But then, but then you also have that one person who has always believed that they were born in the wrong body, um, and given the opportunity to go into a to a synthetic body, do you do you ask them to stay in the body? type they were born in or do you give them what they've always wanted and of course it um, it becomes a, a matter of personal choice and for me um, if like I said I, I do have a character who lived as a woman organically who chooses a male body as a, um, as a synthetic and it's not even a question as whether or not they have the right to do that of course they do Right. I just was mentioning that in terms of um, because, like, even with um, gender reassignment, there's a lot of counseling that goes into that to prepare right. people for yeah, absolutely um, what's going to you know what it's going to be like, what it's going to feel like, and and probably not everybody needs a level of counseling that like some you know places require even by law. Um, but then you know a lot of people I've talked to have needed it. So and I've talked to a lot of people who've um, I've, or I've been friends with and met people who a lot of people have transitioned. So. Um, I just think that a society that is capable of doing these kinds of things finds ways to do it um, carefully, the, and safely. carefully and healthfully. Yeah. And some people, and they'll know. I mean, these people are going to be in a case of where they'll know that is the person who's going to be able to handle a massive adjustment with minimal um, psychological preparation, and they'll go forward with it because they're going to, you know, they're going to be better at dealing with that kind of stuff. Considering everything humans have been through, um, than what we deal with today, you know, than where, where we are today. 
for those of you who are curious about the character who um, lived as a woman but chooses a male body um, as a synthetic, it's Sam Carter. Um, and uh, I I don't know why I chose her. I don't know why. I, I knew I was going to have one. Um, that that I, I wanted to explore that particular aspect of a synthetic um, transition, and I didn't. And I was actually torn between her and Antelli, who I find also very fascinating and a very strong character. And then um, I was going back through my character list, and Sam Carter um, doesn't appear. She's not part of the the, the final crew. Um, <clears throat> because she was cycled heavily during the um during the trip because of her um scientific abilities her and Rodney both and um Rodney um kind of won their lottery as far as who got to be the uh the top dog at the end of the at the end of the road um but I chose Sam Carter because um I, I think her personal strength is really interesting, and I wanted to explore that a little bit. And I felt like if there was a single character that was already established that I could do that with, um, it was Sam Carter. Not just because her name is gender neutral. <laughs> I would have totally called Anna he if Anna wanted to be a he. <laughs> Yeah, I um I as you were when you were just talking about the the character that you chose, the reason I laughed is because in the back of my head I said, I have probably gone with Sam Carter. <laughs> you said Sam Carter. Yeah. And that's why I started laughing because I was like, Yeah, that would be that would have been my pick too. Now I did actually I um there was a moment when I almost chose Taylor. Um but then um I couldn't because there's something I don't know there's there's something about the actress that plays Taylor and I'm like uh, no <laughs> no we'd so. miss we'd miss we'd miss Taylor um <laughs> we'd miss Rachel um and because she's going to be on screen um and um and it's not I didn't choose Sam Carter because she's not part of my active crew I chose her because I knew um it's just it was just uh, an interesting choice to make. Um, and it was not anything more complicated or, um, devious than that. It's, um, it is what it is. It's just good. I like it. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm so thrilled for your story. It's just, it's going to be hard when you post to, because my rule when I'm in challenges is that I finish my shit before I read. And it's going to be so hard when you post. I'll just have to sit there and go, behave yourself, behave yourself, behave yourself. Well, the reason that the um, gender thing will come up in the narrative is because when Alistair gets a body, Alistair, um, they ask Alistair, um, do you want to be a boy or a girl? <laughs> Because <laughs> Alistair's never been either, um, and um, you know Miko is there, and um, he, um, it, um, Alistair does become a he. If you looked at my cast um, list, you um, you can see that Alistair is a boy, um, and um, the reason that Alistair chooses to be a boy is because Miko already has two daughters. Ah. That's actually and really sweet. 
because Alistair doesn't have a preference at that point. He's he's never had a body. He doesn't know how he's going to feel in the body. Um, he just wants a body, and <laughs> and he um, chooses to be a boy because Miko has daughters, and um, so so when Radic finally wakes up, he gets to meet his son. <laughs> Aww. So. Because um, Radic isn't part of the crew, but um, Miko is. So um, I picked the crew based on the family they have in the arc. Because, um, well, Rodney picks the crew based on the family they have in the arc. The more connections they have in the arc, the stronger they'll be. The more they'll fight for a place to live. It isn't just about them. It's about the people in the arc. They have to protect them. They have to find a place for them because these aren't just little digital files to the crew of the Odyssey. These are their people, their family. Um, so the Ark is everything. And you know, the stuff you're the stuff you're doing is is so fascinating, and you couldn't just um, bring this together on the fly. I mean, you couldn't no, just I couldn't sit have down. This. Um, no, I don't you, drove you could, insane. You couldn't just sit down, and even with even just a couple of days of prep, was probably not going to cut it for this. Um, and it's really, it's really kind of um, frustrating. Is a mild word to put it, mild word for it. When people think that doing stuff like this is a waste of time, because it's just amazing things come out of the amount of work you're putting into this, and and even even if it's just something you just wanted to do and didn't need to do, to diminish your choices like that is just I don't know. I just find it really aggravating. <laughs> I don't know if, they, if the um, the one person who really got my back up meant to get my back up. They were just genuinely startled by how much work I was putting in. Um, and I think they didn't realize that that's how much, that they've only seen like a small percentage of the work. Um, I have a 100-page notebook, and it is front and back filled. I have 10 pages left in it. I have 10 blank pages left in this document. So I have, what, um, front and back, that's 200 pages, um, and I have 20 left Damn. to write on. So, um, and I have a second notebook, which I'm probably going to transfer my plot to, because um, my plot is spread, it's like, um, if you go through my notebook, there will be like three pages of notes, uh, chapter two. Four pages of notes, chapter three. <laughs> and so it's like not all of it's all plot. The, 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 the plot's kind of mixed into it across. So um, about a week before I get ready to write, um, I'll transfer my plot into a new book, a new notebook. And it might be a digital notebook. Um, I haven't really decided. Um, well, there's something really awesome about being able to write physically on my plot as I'm working. If I have to, you know, and um, especially when I'm in rough trade, I I really enjoy having an actual notebook 
So it's got post-it notes sticking out of it. And my post-it notes, by the way, are shaped like butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I was reading something. I got into an argument with somebody uh, very recently about whether or not, and I won't get into the rationale, the, the argument, either side of it on, on the podcast because – I don't want to hear from people afterwards. You'd be surprised at how often I hear from people about things I have said on the podcast. And frankly, I just don't want it. You know, I, I don't need people, you know, call, trying to call me on something or tell me I'm wrong about something or, you know, calling me a hypocrite or whatever the fuck it is that got their back up. Just shut up. But anyway, um, I got into an, uh, a little debate with somebody about whether or not cursive handwriting should be taught in um, school whether that was a priority or not. And I did a bunch of uh, reading about um, writing things out by hand versus typing. And there have been a lot of scientific studies of the brain and how cognitively we learn better with things that are handwritten. And even some studies about printing versus cursive and neat versus messy and you know scanning the brain while this stuff is going on. And the sort of the upshot is is that your brain, your cognition is higher with things you've written by hand and even higher with things you've written in cursive. And I realized that that probably has a lot to do with why I plot on paper. Um, and because when I plot on paper, one of the things I notice when I plot on paper versus trying to plot on the computer is I remember it better. I remember my plot points better. I remember my world building better. Um there's almost a bypass. It, it, the way they describe it in these articles I read, there's almost a bypass that happens in um, when you're typing, especially if you're taking notes. Um, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't process in the brain the same way it does when you're um, writing because of the the manual dexterity required um, in writing engages the brain differently. Um, in, in anyway, um, so I tend to. You know, I don't I don't write longhand, but I do plot longhand a lot of times, and I plot well, my, on paper. My articles and essays are typed. Um, I keep a little folder in my um, – I have two folders already in my story folder. One's full of pictures, um, and one is full of um, – um, my um, articles that I um, that I'm working on and writing on, um, but my plot is on paper and my questions and um, um, I have a host of links saved, of course. But I am going to go on the opposite side of this and say absolutely not. We should not teach these little assholes cursive. That way, when we're in the old folks' home, we can use cursive as a secret language. <laughs> they well, won't know what we're argument. saying. Kidding. I'm just kidding. Kinda. But we need all know, the tools it, we could get. I'm just saying. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, literally, people. I do not want anybody. If one person, one person writes me about their arguments for or against teaching cursive in school, I'm gonna out you. I promise. I don't want to hear it. I just am bringing that up because, and I'm not, and I also am not bringing this up to judge anybody's process. So please don't take it as that. It's just it was something interesting that I thought about in my own process, in terms of why I think I remember plots, world building. I kind of absorb it better when I write it out. And I thought it was inter- interesting when I did this reading about writing, handwriting, that it kind of explained my own creative process a little bit to me about why. I have that divide between writing two-handed and plotting with a pen. 
So I do apologize. I've gone through three pins um, in the past four weeks. Dried out. I've, I've used all the ink in them. Um, but um, yeah, I do tend to. Uh, <clears throat> now my sister's kids are being taught cursive. Um, so I don't know um where cursive's not being taught, but my kids, my my sister's kids are learning it. Um, unfortunately, the youngest girl has the most terrible handwriting of anyone I've ever known. I said, oh, she's going to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And I got, I got, it's funny, I got an email recently. I feel like I have done, I feel like 2016, I have done a fuck ton of writing. And writing, like we've talked about in the podcast before, writing is not just literally sit down and typing out the words that make a story. It's the plotting. It's the research. It's it's everything. To go, it's the sitting around in the coffee shop and just thinking about it while I lose myself in the Frappuccino. All of that, to me, is the writing process. And I feel like I have done a huge amount this year. Because there's some things I will never probably get around to writing, but I still plotted them out. I've had a lot of story ideas this year. And I have actually done a lot of literal sit-down and writing stories. And I got an email from somebody that said... That my last story was um, posted in May, and that they would have expected more from me by now. <laughs> Did you tell them to kiss my ass? Because you're welcome to do so. Actually, I haven't responded yet because I just kind of, you know, um, there was a there was kind of an inclination to send them everything that pointers to everything that's happened that has nothing to do with what's made it on AO3. And um, and then I was like, I'm not indulging this bullshit. Um, if they can't figure out how to get to my Evil Author Day stuff and how to come to my website or how to – if they're not – there's all this, there's places that there's shit of mine that is not on AO3. And uh, whatever. But it was just – it felt like there was this moment where I kind of went, well, I've put a lot of time into writing over the summer, even though I haven't finished anything. Um, there's a lot of projects that are actually near completion. And I felt like that this, you know, the comment was like, you know, you haven't actually published anything finished, and so you must be wasting your time or letting us down or, you know, haven't oh, you read your indentured servitude contract? Huh? Tell me, you spent the whole summer building your um your community and and, and role story, and you just got busy. <laughs> hey, I had a little quest of role story over the summer, so fuck you. I had you know I, I had just, digital popcorn plant. When I, I have to say when I when I, I opened can, up, I'm gonna do this. I I am gonna do that next time because when I opened up that last parcel of land in Royal Story, I took six screenshots of my kingdom and went into Photoshop and pieced them together into one picture. Mm-hmm. So I have a single picture of my entire kingdom, and that's the only way to get it is to piece it together like that. And I'm going to send it to the next bitch that does this to me. <laughs> and say, sorry, this is, this what, is I what I was busy doing. Kiss my ass. I was busy. I had crops to plant. Do you have any idea how much barley I harvested this summer? <sighs> the barley. The barley. The barley. Although, <laughs> I have to tell you, no one else is going to appreciate Well, Jeep might appreciate this. Just as an aside, I uh, I had they had this benefit over in um, 
Utopia, where you got 75% accelerated growth on carrots. Mm-hmm. And I had a crop doubler, and both of these things lasted for 12 hours. So I was getting 800 carrots every hour and a half. Awesome. I've got 7,000 carrots. Yay! <laughs> that is great. I saw caramel. Caramel. Oh, it really awesome. is. But I just need to, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to round up some of my royal story statistics, and I'm going to start sending it to the next people that says that I'm not writing enough <laughs> because my indentured servitude co- contract with my readers allows me game time. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what? Um, I have had people um, complain because of my podcast, takes away from my writing time. I've had people complain about me being on Facebook, about me being on Twitter, about Rough Trade. I have gotten more complaints from readers about Rough Trade actually existing than any other thing I do. Um, It's like they don't understand what kind of encouragement happens on Rough Trade. Um, While I'm not taking credit for your accomplishments um, at all, um, upwards of 5 million words have been given to fandom in relation to Rough Trade through um, challenges and um, there are 70 plus um, there's more than that, stories of the Sentinel out there now because of Rough Trade, because we had that challenge, and we've had it for two years in a row, and they have all these crossovers. Um, And you're fucking welcome, Sentinel fandom. I don't even like you. (laughs) You're not my favorite at all. I could be doing an annual Stargate challenge. An annual anything challenge in a fandom that's a little bit more appreciative... Apples. Rough trade is very, to me, it's very inspiring. It's very inspiring during challenge. It's very inspiring. I get ideas coming out of challenge that have nothing to do with challenge. Some of the stories that I plotted out um, for um, net for November that I'm not writing for November, obviously, I will be working on. Um, I'm going to still going to write because I find them really inspiring. And you know, I have I have a little over five hundred thousand words um, based on my word count that are completely completely done on AO3, maybe five hundred fifty something like that. Anyway, I looked at what I've written this year. Besides that, it's well over another five hundred thousand words since in this year on unpublished work. So you know, it just really aggravates me when people like imply that you know, a imply that I have to do anything, and b that I owe anybody anything. Because, you know, fuck you. In the eye. Or in the ear. Whichever would be least comfortable. With a cactus. Whichever would be most uncomfortable. (laughs) We could go anal with that one, too. That would be fine with me. May you get a ginger root stuck in your ass. Or in your dick for all time. Um, yeah, Tiger Bomb Lube. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... Um, so jumping off of the... <laughs> Azure says, I could write, but turning one of my Sims into a serial killer is more fun. <laughs> I actually did spend an entire week earlier... Um, 
like right after um, July Rough Trade, um, playing um, Civilization Four, I took over the world three times. I regret nothing. I think that's I played awesome. one that was just female leaders. I did a custom game and I only picked female leaders. Kicked all their asses. Then I did one where I only picked male leaders and it was male leaders against me. I decimated those motherfuckers. I, I played this out of these people. game on the site where there was a challenge, a specific challenge, and the challenge was to win two games of Risk. You bitches have any idea how long that took me? <laughs> it is not. Risk A is not a fast game. And B, winning is not exactly easy. <laughs> but I had to put some effort into that. I persevered. So, just saying. Hey, um, I did space domination in Civilization four, three, four. Do you know how hard that is? I had to build a fucking rocket. <laughs> that is some serious shit. That, and you're doing that kind of stuff. Sometimes that is my brain reboot to go back to writing because sometimes I need I need some space or I need some time to let an idea percolate, and I don't want to move on to a new idea. Or sometimes I just do it because I fucking want to. Just saying. Writing is my favorite thing, but that does not mean that I have to do it. But there is definitely a perception from some people that once you put words out there that they enjoy, that you owe them more words. And I don't owe you jack shit in case you missed it. But, you know, in terms of inspiration, because um, you helped me, you know, like, you know, work out the, um, um, well, not work out so much as pointed out, and it's one of the things I love about you, is pointed out some of the um, the issues in that kind of germinating Star Trek idea that I had. And um, I got that baby all plotted out now, and working <laughs> with um, sentient life energy in that one. And um, it's just, it's a... It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to to work with other writers and get these ideas and um and it seems like the more time you put into um into 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 a community of writers into a group of writers, the more you get out of it. Well, the there, there's nothing, yeah. there is honestly nothing more inspiring than another writer. I agree. Nothing. Nothing is more. Now I um I find my um I find a lot of comfort and inspiration in music but um writing is a very solitary uh craft um the creative process doesn't have to be You can be alone in your head but not alone and uh, you know a, a writing community um is just awesome just awesome. I think our you... forum is working out really well. Yeah, it is. I really love the forum. I was kind of worried about it. I'll, um, we'll see how it goes during challenge. Um, but um, it will be easy for me to cut the forum off during challenge and then turn it back on afterwards if it becomes a problem. Um, and I have asked another person to help moderate um, during November um, if a, a, a reader doesn't... Um, Behave, and you can get banned from the forum 
specifically. I have that ability to do that. So um, don't be an asshat. That, that, that's all I'm saying. Don't don't ruin our fun. It's not too much to ask. No, because in addition to you, the people are um, being an asshat. It's also a distraction. You know, even if they're not being an asshat to me directly, you know, there's like, okay, we have to deal with you now. And I could yeah. be writing. If you show your ass in my forum, I'm going to lose all ability to write until I make you feel bad about your life choices. And we don't need that. Kira has shit to do. World. Elimination plan. (laughs) Because, you know, um, one of the most difficult um, articles I'm currently working on um, is what I'm calling um, the last transmission from Earth. Um, and it will be... Um, it. Um, I'm not sure who's going to open it um, and, and when it will hit the Odyssey, but um, there will be a final transmission from Earth when um, and they realize that um, Earth is dead and so is everybody on it. That they are literally the last of humanity. God, what a so moment that would be. Then there's that um, that um, discussion that they have to have with themselves because there is that android colony on Mars um, do we give them the androids the information they need to join us? They're not genuine AIs, but they are very closely related to the synthetics in their construction. Um, so, do we? Do we rescue the androids? Do we give them our location? Do we tell them um, that they can join us, that that they can come? And so that's a um, a question that happens. And um, in the end, um, they have to. Um, I don't. I. I, I I've asked that question, and I haven't finished that article because I don't know. I don't know if they tell the androids that they can join them. Because, you know, there's a scene in um, iRobot that really, really stuck with me. And if you've never watched um, watched the movie iRobot, they, they gather up these robots and they put them in these shipping containers... And they're all, when when they put them in, they're all standing in little spots individually. But when they open the doors back up, all the robots have gathered up together and they're huddled in the back of the, um, the shipping Oh, yeah, that was like, oh, that was such a weird moment. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's like, so there's that question of, of, at this moment, you know, what is life? Um, um, they do have limited sentience. Um, they're, they've been abandoned on Mars. Um, 
So, um, and, I, and I don't know how um, they're going to. Um, I don't know how they're going to respond. Um, and um, but the, but the last transmission um, from Earth will come from an android. Um, so they have to um, decide. You know, are they going to leave the that android life on um, Earth or? Or what? And then the other question is: Is do the um, will the androids even want to leave? They have the Earth to themselves now, and they don't need a biological connection. Maybe the ones on Mars come back to Earth, and then you have that whole theme of that. Um, the 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 anti-science movement. <laughs> so there's a little karma here. The anti-science movement is the reason the synthetics leave Earth, and with them, they take knowledge and experience, and perhaps even the ability to save humanity from themselves. All the humans die, and all that's left on Earth are robots. It's such a weird idea. <laughs> but it seems so plausible. <laughs> the robots be like, well, hey, dudes on Mars, you want to come back? Because we don't need all that shit you're, you're currently mining. We're cool. Come on. <laughs> I don't have any of these people to support anymore. <laughs> let send those assholes a message who left and and let them know that um good timing all, all those jerk faces who 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 run them off the planet are dead um so but um it's just it's an interesting um it's an interesting moment in my um in my narrative and I don't know how I'm going to um to deal with it and um I think it's a you know a, a good thing to point out to those of you um who um who might be, you know, interested um, in how um, my particular process works, and that while I do have the answers to a lot of my questions, and I do know um, what's going to happen in Chapter 4, what's going to happen in Chapter 10, I don't always have all the answers to my questions when I go in to start writing. Um, because um, sometimes I just don't know the answer to that question until I, uh, until I get there. Mm-hmm. Because... A lot of things develop in the actual writing. Because yeah. I'm building a, um, I'm building a frame. My plot's just a frame. I still got to write the quilt, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I um, when I, a lot of times, what kind of sometimes can kind of make my plot kind of veer, is sometimes I get to writing the story and I I kind of get into the vibe of the character, or the characters. And they kind of, it goes a little bit, of a, it's not like it is happening outside of me, but what feels comfortable, what feels good as I'm moving through a scene, it takes me a little bit off of what would naturally fit my plot. You know what I mean? It's like I kind of then get to a plot point, but the character, as I felt comfortable developing them for the story, is you know a few degrees off of making that plot point happen the way I anticipated. 
So it's just there's just kind of this evolution that happens, bringing things back together, making sure things make sense, um, making sure that the per- character stays in character because the last thing you want is to stay rigid to a plot and have people going, you throw somebody right out of the story because they say, well, based upon the way you developed this character, they wouldn't do that thing. And um, so, you know, what, there's, something like, there's some line that you know, Chuck Wendig says in one of his thing about outlining that um, no battle strategy survives engagement with the enemy, just like no plot survives um, the actual writing. No plot document um, survives the actual writing process. Uh, so if you are a plotter, you know, prepare for changes. Well, that's the one thing I do give myself permission to do. Um, as much as I plan, as much as I plot, if I get in it and something inspires me or moves me, um, I do give myself permission to to go there. I, I don't like to limit myself, um, and I don't consider a plot limiting it's not my prison, um, so it's more of a, it's just a plan. It's just a plan. It's just a plan. You, you know, I did something a little bit different this time, um, not in terms of writing. This is something completely different. <clears throat> but I just want to say, I know, and I say this because a lot of people are, I know people. a lot of people are very nervous about trying this. We talked about this earlier. But I normally, when we do kind of the open call for, um, you know, who needs art for the month. Uh, as I see, you know, kind of people I'm familiar with usually or who have a plot that sounds interesting to me and or a fandom I'm familiar with and they say I need art and I go and I respond. I did, and I say, yeah, I'll do your art. And this time I, we, we did it a little, I did it differently. We did it differently. And artists kind of said, you know, if you want art, sign up and, you know, if possible, unless it's just something that really puts me off or that I just can't do, I'll do it. So this is a different month for me because I did, I'm closed now. Um, I'm, I'm close to request right now because I, I have a lot to do this month. Um, but I took on I, you know eight or nine projects this year, and um, I just I didn't turn anybody away. And you know I got to read about fandoms I don't know because everybody sends me a, kind of a basic synopsis of what they're writing about, so I have some idea of. You guys are gonna do fine. You're gonna do fine because there was so much creativity and inspiration in the stuff I saw. And I, you know, I felt really privileged to be part of that early and to see where people were going. And those of you who are readers, your socks are just going to be knocked off when you get to November. There is just people are, people are just going places. They're just going for it to make this challenge work. And it's so awesome. It, it's so it is. Awesome. It's just it's so inspiring as a as a writer, and also as a, for me it was a, as a, an artist, it was very inspiring to get to be part of. Um, the formative process for some people. Um, a couple people said that they had been, you know, that even just to hear that, you know, the art inspired them more to work on their project, that is really just really encouraging. It's just going to, everything becomes kind of organic and it's a real community. And it just gave me so much, you know, confidence about how November's going to go, even though I think a lot of people are still intimidated, that just relax because. Everything I have seen in project files, in these, you know, these um, the art requests I got, art requests other people have received, it's just everybody is just diving into the deep end of the pool. And, you know, I don't mean this 
patronizingly at all, but it could sound that way, I am so proud of everyone because there was so much anxiety early on about this challenge, and it just it's awesome. I'm just I'm so inspired and motivated by you guys. It's it's great, and we're seeing a whole bunch of different fandoms, and um, it's just it's it's gonna be a lot of fun. We yeah, have we're, we're seeing video games. We've got um, fantasy series. We've got um, original worlds. We've got we've got fandoms I've never heard of, but I'm now intrigued by, and it's just it's gonna be really exciting. We have 55 projects so far, and still five days left to sign up. So. going to be so a lot of fun, you guys. Just, you know, and no, Rough Trade is a, um, you can you can fail a challenge, but you can't fail the writing, you know? So just, um, you can fail a challenge in the sense that you didn't meet it, but you never fail at writing. If you do it, you do it, and it's great, and try it, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't um, shake your tree, you tried something new, and it'll be great. Yeah, there's five days left to sign up. There's mm, 15 days left for project files. Mm-hmm. Um, science ends the 15th. Project files must be posted by the 25th. This is just for my sanity because um, I have to be able to um, settle down. Um, I'm still in the planning mode, but there will come a point in my process where I have to um, stop thinking about it and stop you know, touching it. And then I'll have to um, wait for the writing. And at that point, I don't want to be dealing with your shit, too. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the things that also has helped me, if you're really anxious to work on your project, um, which I am, uh, I don't know how many people are in that boat where they're just like, how am I going to hold on for 20 more days or 21 more days? Uh, the short, the prompts are a really good way of keeping yourself busy with writing um, and not, yeah, I've, it's like kept me from the prompts have literally kept me from having to plot out another story for November. (laughs) I was so close to just starting it and saying, fuck it. I just want to get into this. Yeah. Every time she gets tempted, she asks me for a new prompt. That's why I I don't have a beard. She's like, I need a new prompt. Okay. (laughs) Don't write the verbal things. But we're doing word prompts and character prompts now, and they're a lot of fun. So if you've not um, gone over there to see them, you can go to the Rough Trade forum. It's called the Workshop. If you go to the, the Rough Trade site, the last link on the on the menu is the Workshop, and that's where our forum is. And you will see the big short forum, and it has variations on a character and variations on a theme. And the theme are um, word uh, prompts, and the... Um, Character prompts are obviously characters, and we have two characters right now, Steve McGarrett and Jack Dalton from the new MacGyver. Um, And there's been lots of responses to the word prompts, um, of which we have a whole bunch of those, um, because that was what we first first started doing. Um, And they're just excellent. They're just excellent. You guys need to definitely sign up for that. The most fun I've had... The most fun I've had... I mean, I've enjoyed every story I've written uh, so far, every short I've written. I have to say the one I had the most fun writing was the Jack Dalton prompt. And he's not, he's a brand new character, basically. Um, we've, we've, we've got uh, three, two hours, it's like two hours and, no, like two hours and 20 minutes or something like that of screen time with this guy. But you really can get a good sense of him from those that limited, limited amount of screen time. And it was just, that that prompt was just a blast. So 
Um, I have I had a lot of fun with it too. And it was it was really good. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah. I was telling um, George Eads plays. Um, is, that, is, is that how you say his last name? Eads. I believe so. Um, plays the new Jack Dalton. Um, he's been reimagined in the new MacGyver series. Um, and I was telling um the bitches that if ever a man existed that could give me a daddy kink, it's George Eads. <laughs> I didn't even know it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, when you said that, I was like, is she going to go there? And you, you, you kind of hinted at it a little bit. And, then, and I was like, oh, yeah, that really works. It really works with him. I don't yeah. know. You could put, you, huh? Yeah, it really does. It's like, oh, shit. You didn't even know that was there until it was there. And like, oh. It's like, hey, if you're going to go there, just wow. And it was like, oh, I, I'm totally digging it. Um, so, you know, if you don't, if you don't know the character, uh, so what, go read, go read the fix anyway, people, because they're, um, Kira, Kira did a banging job with that story. (laughs) No pun intended. I I give you a picture, yeah, um, I give you a picture and a brief bio, so that if you're not familiar with them, um, you'll be, you'll get an idea of, of who they are and, and and what show they're on, um, and um, I'm really enjoying. Um, I loved your Steve McGarrett one. That was awesome. Um, Lady Holder did a Narcissum Malfoy one um, on one of the word prompts. Which word prompt was that, Lady Holder? It was awesome. Fury. I was like, hell yeah! It was Fury. Fury. It was Fury. She did it well on the Fury prompt, and I was like, hell yeah! <laughs> that was good. I, it, I I won't give you guys spoilers, but I was cracking up. It was it was awesome. Um, and um T, indeed T. Um but yeah. if you but if you if you click on the prompt we we respond in thread so you'll see um feedback and you'll see re- um prompts and responses and it's just it's great. Yeah. And it's the great. um Oh, my brain just had a little bit of a blanky moment. Oh, somebody, somebody mentioned in chat um, that uh, we have kind of George Eads playing um, Nick Stokes in CSI to fall back on if you're not familiar with Jack. I would have to say it's rare that an actor reinvents themselves as successfully as he did uh, playing Jack Dalton. Um, yeah. But he bears no resemblance to Nick Stokes. I mean, none. I, I don't I don't see Nicky in him at all. Uh, so... Um, it, it just it's it's it it's kind of actually it really speaks to his his talent as an actor that that there's just you know no 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 resemblance to anything he's done before so um, he's a really fun character he's my favorite part of the reboot I may keep watching it longer just for him than I might have otherwise but I'm actually hopeful that the show will um, take off and kind of you know smooth out its rough spots. Um, I would say that Jack Dalton is like he's a little bit of a smart ass like Jack O'Neill. He's a little bit of a badass like Steve McGarrett. Um he has a surprising amount of vulnerability. Yeah, and he's really um he's not ashamed of it at all. No, he's very forthright about it. Um, he kind of has Tony Denozo's snarkiness, um, mm-hmm. and he's just—you know—the the character is brilliantly reimagined. Uh, so he's open. 
um, but a badass. And, um, yeah. And, of course, I wrote porn. She did write porn. She wrote... Um, the, she wrote she wrote porn with Dr. Spencer Reed and I did um, and I, my my comment was a, a, a new ship has a new ship has <laughs> set to sea because I was like I I have I have a new ship and there's one what the fuck it's really terrible when you get a new ship and, and there's, there's one one story like oh uh, well I guess I'll just have to you know reread this like fifty times that's gonna <laughs> <laughs> and that will be no hardship you know at all. But yeah, I wrote porn. Um, that's the second time I've written porn for the Big Short, though. Um, I wrote um, was what was my other porn? What was really porn? Now I have to go look at. See, I see. That's where my brain is um, because of um, planning for rough tra- um, for rough trade. I'm just kind of off. Um, Yes, oh, I, was, I did something a, very lewd with a with a popsicle. Rodney, I did Rodney and um, John in the shower porn. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't have I read have I really written any porn this time? I've written a lot of responses. <laughs> I think I've written ten so far. And this is how hard Which I'm trying not to write on November. Trying not to write November, yeah. I mean, I guess you could kind of say the one the prompt one I did for surrender um, is sort of well, it's sex, but I don't know. That, I don't know. It didn't feel like porn to me. Um, but I wrote straight up porn. <laughs> she did. She wrote straight up porn. But I don't I think I've written any. Have I? Um, I feel like I'm falling down on the job. You need to go write some porn. <laughs> I do need to go write some porn. Probably using the wet prompt because you know <laughs> that one. I did actually put wet up with the with the um, expectation that I would get porn, and I didn't get as much porn as I thought I deserved. <laughs> Just gonna be perfectly honest about this. I was like, I put wet up as a as a as a prompt, and I I didn't get any porn forever. I know. I told her when she put the prompt up because um, actually she you let, you let me let me pick that one. You said of these, which would you want? And I said wet. And you said I'm just gonna get a wall full of porn for that. And I just immediately responded, not for me. From this, you're gonna get all schmoopy stuff. No, I was like Tony in the rain. Great, great. It's beautiful. But where's my porn? <laughs> I was expecting porn. I did get some popsicle porn from Lady Holder. It made me feel better about everybody's life choices. <laughs> I think we did get eventually get some porn on that thread, but um, yeah, it wasn't what we expected. And then I think we thought that uh, Surrender would get a lot of porn, and but it hasn't um, so far. It hasn't had that much porn either. Um, very well, it's, it's, but there's sex. So it's just kind of like you know, it's it's definitely more emotional intimacy than my hardcore banging. I had hoped in my Steve in a, no, I'd hoped to get to. Um, some knock, boots knocking. I knew I wasn't going to get to any, any knocking boots in uh, my Steve McGarrett character one, but I'd hoped to get to it in the in the Jack Dalton one. But I just I just needed more time with uh, developing Jack and his whole headspace. I didn't get to sex in that, so it just didn't see, work out. See, here's the thing with me and Jack Dalton. I just put him in the bed because what? <laughs> Yeah, we came by that completely different direction, but you know, I had a I had a blast. With, I with still the, think that my that that my Jack was fully formed as a character, though. He was. He was fully formed as a character. You got so much information about him and what he was thinking and 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 how he was reacting to things. He was fully formed. Well, as a character. Spencer was taking it for a ride. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whereas, whereas I, I kind of went the direction of uh, um, sort of more about, it was almost more about Mac and, uh, and, and Jack's relationship than anything else. Um, and kind of that evolution of their um, relationship working together and secrets coming out and that kind of thing. Um, so I felt like, you know, I just kind of came out from a little bit of a different... Um, why would you ever let Jack Dalton leave? Well, Tony's never let them leave bed again, you know. He's going to take him for a long, hard ride. Um, but it's all off screen. You'll just have to imagine it. <laughs> no, you won't. I'm going to go over there and write Jack Dalton Tony porn any minute now. <laughs> Damn it. I don't but know no, if I can because I think people would think, see it as a continuation of that first one, and I feel like I'd be breaking my own rule. Well, if you give him, if you, um, if you give Jack another partner. Yes, I can do that. You know, but you know the problem with that is is I have a new ship and I would want to go, you know, explore the ship, but I don't want to be driven. <laughs> Put a note on it, inspired by Kira, and write me some fucking porn. Do I have to beg? What is what? <laughs> no, all right. I will. I was like, I said, Kira has given me a ship, and it. It needs more expl- it needs more exploration, so it's just her fault. <laughs> Get aboard the USS Spencer. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to make you a banner now called the USS Spencer Reed. <laughs> <laughs> I will put it on my Facebook. Well, there's no rule against being derivative. If if there was, that'd be a problem on Rough Trade since it's mostly fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> we're calling it the USS Spencer Reed. That's what we're calling it. The USS Spencer Reed. No, the USS Spencer Reed. <laughs> That's all it needs to say. <laughs> you can't call it Jack Reed because it sounds perverted. <laughs> right, because of Jack Hotchner, the little kid on well, Criminal Mind. Also, read Jack as a verb. <laughs> what do I call the Steve Tony ship? Uh, the mothership. <laughs> That's the mothership. Um, no, we are not calling it McNozo. <laughs> I hate, I, I, I hate that. But I hate the mixing of two names together. It drives me insane. Um, even McShep, actually, I don't like McShep either. But I, I sometimes use it because that's how that was there when I first joined the fandom. Um, but honestly, to be perfectly frank. Um, nothing makes me matter in this world than Spork. Or Spurk. What the fuck? Don't call the grandfather of Slash Spork. It is well, I've ca- Spock. I thought, what was it? McSpurk? That's the reason we call it Slash to begin with. Because there was a fucking Slash between Kirk and Spock. Why we got Slash, that's right. Don't call it Spurk. And apparently the the trio is very popular too and it's called Mixburk. Fuck you. And <laughs> I just, the 
first time I saw that. You said you joined our fandom and fucked it up. Fuck you. So I'm I'm like rolling I'm like scrolling past something on Facebook and I see references to McSpurk and I went, What is McSpurk? I don't understand. If I see McSpurk in the tags, I won't even read it. Fuck you. I'm willing Absolutely. to blame Glee for a lot of shit, so might as well blame them for that. It is Kirk Spock. Kirk slash slash Spock. That's where we get slash from you do not <sighs> fuck all you fetuses just fuck all y'all <laughs> i'm i'm going to change my new um my my new mantra to not just i blame participation trophies but i blame participation trophies and glee <laughs> because <laughs> and glee i'm going to blame glee for a lot <laughs> no i refuse azure and there's no cock not even with a k absolutely not You are me. I don't care. <laughs> Take it back. Take that cock back immediately. <laughs> no, no cock. <laughs> and for me to say no cock, that that means something. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, I I do I occasionally because like you I do uh, first came into the fandom with Tibbs right, but it actually it's every once in a while I use it, but it kind of does annoy the snot out of me because that is the name of um, Gibbs' character in that horrible McGee novel. L <laughs> J Tibbs. <laughs> it's like it's like like paying homage to that terrible thing that allowed was allowed to exist. So. Um, the Grande ship. <laughs> Why not the Venti ship? Because <laughs> that's my well, favorite side. I mean, <laughs> it was the first, right? So it's more like Ship Prime. <laughs> they would corrupt it. Uh, Trenta ship. It is a big <laughs> ship. It is a big ship. Although, I was reading some um, statistical stuff. I think... Uh, the biggest ship on AO3 is it? Is it Sherlock, Doctor John? I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's terrible, <laughs> not terrible, but it's just not terrible. It's just surprising that that is to me that that's the big Kahuna, you know. Um, I'm I'm honestly surprised that um, McKay Shepard isn't the big dog. I mean, because it's huge, and the Star Trek, and the Star and, and the Stargate fandom is really big. Um. But yeah, it's huge. Anyway, I fully expect my USS Spencer Reed banner. You're gonna um, get and your we're down USS to, Spencer Reed. We're down to fifty-one seconds. Take your asses over to Rough Trade and read our prompts. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. And right you guys, have, you guys have a great evening, and um, I'll probably be like, I'll see you next time. Say goodnight. Good night. <laughs>